Well, Sunday mornings, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And as you come into the parking lot, you see these big banners out there. You see the little header on your note sheet that says, The King and His Kingdom. And Matthew, the writer of this Gospel, is presenting, not just a good teacher, but this scandalous claim that Jesus is King. And this is how Jesus presents Himself, that He is the fulfillment, the one that all of Israel had been waiting for, hoping for, really the one that all humankind has been waiting for, and that when he comes, he sets up a new kingdom that he's really leading, that he really has ways in which he wants his followers to follow him like a king, and it it affects your whole life, like living under any authority. This is the best authority, and and this is the invitation, is to see Jesus Uh, as the king, the invitation to live in his kingdom. And when we get to Matthew 7, which is where we're at today, this last part of the the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in history, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. Some of it even sounds downright strange. So let's read together the first 12 verses. You've got um, this printed on the note sheet. It's on the screen. And uh, if you want to use your Bible, the one in front of you too says, do not judge. Here's Jesus speaking. Do not judge. You probably heard this before. Or you too will be judged. (laughs) For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, at first glance, it seems like there is a contradiction here, doesn't it? Because verse 1 says, don't judge people. And then down in verse 6, it calls people dogs and pigs. So here's Jesus saying, don't judge people, you dog. Don't you go judging people now, you pig. But we'll see why this is not a contradiction, but is a convicting, brilliant piece of teaching from Jesus. Verses 1 through 6, that first half, tells us about the kind of relationships that Jesus wants us to have in the Christian community. And by extension, all of our relationships. Verses 7 through 11, 7 through 12, that second part, are about prayer. And we spent some time in the Sermon on the Mount talking about prayer, so we're going to focus more on the first half than the second. But let me just say this, that we need to draw the conclusion. If you want the kind of relationships that verses 1 through 6 to describe, you're going to need to pray like verses 7 through 11. So what kind of relationships do we need? Begin with verse 1. It says, do not judge. What does that mean? Whenever you look at the Bible and you ask what a word means... 
You're asking a question about what scholars call a word's semantic or lexical range. And you can see this when you look up a word in the dictionary. Usually words have more than one definition listed, right? Why why is that? Because every word has a range of meanings, depending on the context somewhat, uh, because a word can be used differently. So what does the word judge mean here? At one end of the lexical range of what this word can mean, judge simply means to evaluate. I didn't judge that distance very well, you say, as you trip down the stairs. To evaluate means simply to say something like, this is good instead of bad. This is right rather than wrong. Or this is better, not worse. Right? That's making an evaluation. So is this is what Jesus is forbidding? Is he saying, don't ever say to anybody what you're doing is wrong? Don't ever criticize anybody even with the best intent and spirit. Don't say anything about their beliefs or behavior because that's judging. That's what most people in our current cultural context think when they read this. I mean, this is like one of the things that people know Jesus says, don't judge, don't you throw that on me, right? We're told all the time, don't you judge. It means don't tell people that their behavior is, is wrong or maybe immoral. Don't tell them that their beliefs are wrong or bad or that they're doing something that's blowing their own life up or hurting other people. No, 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 that's judging. Don't do that. Is that what Jesus means to not evaluate or critique or never criticize? He can't mean that. Ironically, when you say you should never evaluate negatively somebody else's behavior, you should never tell people they're wrong. At that moment, you're doing that. You are telling the person not to do the thing that you yourself are doing to them in that moment. It just doesn't work. And besides that, as we already seen in verse 6, Jesus is making a negative evaluation of somebody in verse 6. When he calls some people dogs or pigs, it is not a hidden compliment. So when Jesus says, don't judge, it can't mean don't ever criticize, don't ever speak directly to someone and say, that's trouble, that's danger, watch out. It can't mean don't ever tell somebody that they're wrong or living wrongly or believing wrongly or behaving wrongly. Well, then what's at the other end of this range of what this word can mean? What else can it mean? The Old Testament talks about how God will return to judge the earth. And that means that when he comes back to judge the earth, he's coming to punish evil, to exclude evil, to condemn evil, ultimately to destroy all evil. This work of being ultimate judge overall, Jesus talks about himself as judge over the souls of men and women. That work belongs to God alone. Only God can condemn. So if you can judge in terms of making an evaluation, in terms of even criticizing something, but you cannot judge in the sense of condemning that you stand over someone, that you know something about their heart and their soul that only God knows, what's the difference? There are a lot of ways to slice it. I think one of the big differences is it's largely about your attitude. Let me say what I mean by that. In Romans 14, one of the letters later in the New Testament... Paul says, why do you judge your brother? Here's that word again. And then immediately he says, why do you look down on him? Think of it this way. When you criticize someone, are you trying to help them? Are you trying to restore the relationship? Are you trying to actually do good for them, even if it doesn't seem or feel like that to them? Are you trying to say, I I want you to see this, because without it, there's danger, the trouble is hurt. You need to see this. I really want you to understand. In other words, are you coming humbly, 
seeking to, to either strengthen that relationship, to maintain it, or just to offer genuine help? Or is your intent to condemn, to punish? Are you criticizing to cause pain? Are you criticizing just to make the person feel bad, to make yourself feel good, to, to make the playing field uneven, to look down on someone else, like Paul says? And you can see that this, the lexical range of this word. Jesus doesn't mean you shouldn't speak honestly, that you shouldn't criticize. He can't mean that because the Bible is full of critique. What he means is that it's never your place to stand in condemnation over somebody. What he means is that it's never your place to stand in the place of God. Your relationships with people should have no sense of haughtiness, condescension, or a desire to hurt them. A desire to just get them out of your life no matter what. Yes, we draw boundaries with people that hurt us, but there's always the possibility that God could change them. There's always the possibility He can reconcile and restore. Jesus says we must never treat people like that. There's this balance to strike here that comes up a lot in the New Testament. It's not just telling the truth, but speaking the truth in love. There must be humility. There must be a respect. You recognize this person was created in the image of God. And I'm actually going to say something to them that I'd rather not say because I think this is for their best. That, that's a humble heart coming to somebody. A desire to, to strengthen the person, to strengthen the relationship, not to destroy it or them, to genuinely help. So how does that actually work out in actual relationships? Jesus' first fascinating metaphor in verses 3 through 5 will help us understand. It says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, meaning you're wearing masks, you two-faced person. First, take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First off, what's this metaphor getting across? When you have something, some kind of a splinter or something in your eye, even if it's really small, it can destroy your ability to see out of that eye. I spent the summer after I graduated from high school at a Young Life summer camp doing outdoor maintenance. It wasn't glamorous, but it was really good for me. <laughs> and our crew was building a fence one afternoon, hammering in galvanized nails, and a tiny metal shaving broke off of one of the nail heads and stuck straight into my cornea. And it was this tiny little thing that my whole body just felt overcome with pain. And all I could do was lay on the ground and hold my face. And people carried me to a car that took me to the emergency room in Salida, Colorado, to have this thing removed. And one of the terrible things about something wrong with your eye is you can see it when they're working on your eye. You're like, oh my gosh, they're coming in. Is that metal? Is that a knife? What's going on here? I can understand this metaphor more spiritually because of what happened to my eye. Because when you have a sin in your life, something lodged in your own soul that you're unwilling to deal with, it destroys your ability to see other people and the world around you clearly. For example, let's, guys, let's just say some girl really hurt you one time. And now you're kind of bitter, right? What you can't really see, but probably other people can see, is that you're just bitter against women in general. You have a distorted view of them, and your relationships with them are distorted. Somebody needs to put you right and tell you about it, but it won't be easy. Or, here's another example, maybe you have such an over-desire to be successful that you cannot see what you're doing to your family through your overwork. There's so many things like this, so many sins, so many inordinate desires, so many things we want too much 
fears, anxieties, bitternesses, grudges from the past that we carry with us. And these things lodge in your soul the way that a splinter gets in your eye. And as a result, it distorts your ability to see others clearly and humbly. What did I need when that metal splinter was lodged in my eye? I needed someone to help me. You need someone to help you. Jesus says if you have something in your eye, you need someone to help you get it out. We might just use a mirror today, but in Jesus' time, that was largely irrelevant because only the wealthy had mirrors. And I'm, yes, sure, there was like reflective things like water and glazed surfaces, but not clear enough to get a splinter out of your eye. And the general trouble with problems in your eye is that you can't see to fix them. You see the power of the metaphor here. You need someone who can come in and help you get it out. Can you see where Jesus is leading this? You need people. We need people to come and tell us the truth, to show us where we are not seeing things straight, to show us the sin that is lodged in our souls. We need help, but we need to tell, we need people to tell us the truth in the same way that a person gets something out of someone's eye with great care. Right? If you say, I got something in my eye I can't see, and somebody just like lunges at you. You're like, whoa, whoa hold on. I'm going to ask somebody else. This is way too aggressive. Let's say they, they, they're like, all right, I got something for you, and they pull out a hammer and a screwdriver. You're like, no, this, no, no. Even if they come with tweezers, which seems more suited to the problem, you're like, I don't want that metal. I mean, isn't there something soft like, like Kleenex or butterfly wings or like baby sheep eyebrows? I don't know, something just soft to get this thing out of there. And Gently, thoughtfully, slowly, but directly, this is the metaphor Jesus is giving us for how we're supposed to tell each other about our faults. Isn't that something? We need people to help us. We have specks in our eyes. We have to have people around us who will tell us what's wrong with us. And we have to invite them to do that. Yet, it must be winsome and careful and thoughtful Even gentle, the Bible talks about. Now, Jesus expands the metaphor, and he shows us how not to go about this. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? It's it's, it's an exaggerated metaphor. It's even kind of a, a funny one. Here's Jesus Christ talking about a guy who's coming to try to help get the splinter out of your eye, and there is a two by four sticking out of his own. And it's kind of silly, except maybe it's not. (laughs) What's he talking about? First of all, he's talking about people who are far more aware of other people's flaws than their own. There are people who are super sensitive to what is wrong with other people, and they see a little speck in other people's eye, and yet their own vision is impaired. In fact, they may have even bigger sin problems in their own lives. Or maybe the metaphor goes like this. If you have a speck in your eye, it should look like a plank to you. You should see the priority of needing to take care of it there first before you're able to go and help somebody else. Maybe you see the speck in someone's eye, it's a speck, but in your eye it should be a plank. In other words, Jesus is saying, unless your sin looms larger to you, unless you see your sins as greater than other people's sins, you're not going to be able to help them with theirs. In fact, here's evidence. Don't you know your own heart? A thousand times better than anybody else's heart. A thousand times better. I I know a thousand times more what goes on inside of me than my wife does or than I know what goes on inside of her own heart. As close as we are, as much as we talk to each other. 
I know so much more about all the thoughts and the inner workings. So why is it that I don't think of my own pettiness and my own self-pity and my own self-centeredness and my own sins and my own anger? Why don't I see my own flaws as a thousand times bigger than anybody else's? I, I don't. And you probably don't either. And the fact that other people's sins seem so much bigger or worse than what's going on inside of us just shows how disordered our hearts can be. Just listen to these amazing words from the Apostle Paul. Church planter Paul wrote a lot of Bible. Paul, listen to this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Really? Like Hitler, just to name one. <laughs> Paul? But he's, he's, there, there's a humility here of Paul recognizing how desperate his need is for Jesus. And listen what happens. For that very reason, I was, shown, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Jesus is saying, if you want to help other people with their specs, and we need help, you have to see your own sins as greater than other people's. You have to be humbled by your knowledge of your sin. What's in your eye should look huge to you. And once you realize how proud, how self-centered, how petty, how anxious you are, then you're going to be able to go about speaking the truth in love with that winsome sweetness and humble helpfulness that we all need. Do we have a community like that? Do you have friends who operate in your life like that? We need that balance of truth and love. It is not cowardice, but it is not sanctimony and spite. It's not clamming up and it's not being harsh. Those are ditches on both sides of the road here. And if you're wondering if you have that balance down, why don't you just assume no? Here's why. Because people generally come from one of two different kinds of cultural backgrounds that tells them how to deal with relationships. And we have different personality types that bend us one way or the other. Traditional cultures, what you'd call shame and honor cultures, find it incredibly important to save face. These are not families or groups or societies that value blunt honesty and truth-telling. Keeping the appearance of your outward honor and respect is more important than the truth. The other cultural background, in contrast to that, would be a a more modern one, a guilt and innocence culture like many Western cultures, where individuality and truth-telling are supreme. But the problem is everybody feels entitled to their own truth, which erodes truth and truthfulness. And you're never allowed to criticize anybody because it's considered hateful. You see, everybody's cultural background, everybody's cultural background takes away from what Jesus is talking about here. No culture has a leg up on the other. One culture says, pour on the love and honor, but just be quiet about the truth. And another culture says, tell your truth, speak your mind, and if it makes them feel bad, that's their problem. Personality temperaments show this out too. Some people don't like to rock the boat, and others of you are quite good at rocking the boat. (laughs) Some people are peacemakers. Some people are straight talkers. We need help because of our cultures, because of our temperaments. Or we won't have the relationships that God says we should have, that we desperately need. The truth is, our culture is really schizophrenic about this. On the one hand, we have a relativistic, individualistic culture that says you must never tell anybody that they're wrong because that's hateful. 
And on the other hand, we live in an internet culture where people say the most devastating, scathing, asinine things that they would never say if the person was right there in front of them or even on the phone with them. So our culture pushes us towards these polar extremes, clamming up or blowing up. We need help if we're going to be people who get the planks out of our eyes, who see our sins for what they are, and therefore are not afraid to help other people with the things in their life, to say to them, here's what's stuck in your soul. Can I help you with it? I've had problems like that myself. Isn't that like the, the key to great parenting? Like to be able to come to them and say, I've blown it too, and let me show you a better way. This is actually the key to good relationships, to come with that kind of humility and help. And you do it in a way that's loving and gracious and ennobling so that people can actually hear you and not turn you off. What kind of heart do we need? Take a look at verse 6, which is really just a little one-verse-long parable. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Dogs were often domesticated in that culture, much like our own. And in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, later in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is talking with a woman and they're, they're kind of bantering back and forth a little bit. And he says, I came to the lost sheep of Israel. And she says, she, she's not an Israelite woman. She says, yes, O Master, but even the dogs under the table eat the scraps from their, uh, their owner's supper. And she's referring to the common idea, which is that you threw your leftover dinner scraps to the, the family dog that was under the table. Our golden retriever loves dinner time because of my kids. This is a domestic dog that Jesus is talking about here. Pigs were also almost always domestic. Usually the Romans were the ones that had pig farms because the Jews generally stayed away from them. So when it's talking about throwing things to pigs and dogs, what are you throwing to them? You're feeding them. The picture here is of animals owned by someone, and it's that person's job to feed them, but the owner is not doing his or her job because he's throwing them things that cannot be eaten. Things that if they ate would, would hurt them or choke them. So what do the animals do? It says if you throw the animals things they expect to be able to eat and they find they're not edible and that hurt them, they may turn on you and bite you. And who knows, maybe this is another comedic moment from Jesus where he talks about the animals looking at the master and saying, well, at least you're edible. <laughs> that thing you gave me is not. And here's what's interesting about this. Jesus does not depict just the stupid owner throwing rocks or stones to his animals, but pearls. We know that a pearl is something precious. Jesus even calls what you're giving them something sacred. But if you look at the rest of the, of the book of Matthew, and we're going to see it when we get to chapter 13, this is, a, this is a very specific metaphor for Jesus of the pearl, that the pearl is the gospel of the kingdom. Let's look at it. Matthew 13, it's another little brief parable. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. A man discovers an incredible pearl, and he goes and he sells everything. He says, I have to have that. I have to give everything up to get that. Jesus says the pearl is the gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom, which you can say is the gospel of the king. The king of the universe, Jesus Christ, has come to earth to go to the cross to save us by his grace. And when a woman or a man sees this gospel, this pearl, and understands it, she gives up everything to get it. 
Now consider for a moment the contrast between a pig and a person. How does a pig deal with a pearl? How does a pig deal with the gospel? And this is where Jesus is getting pointed. A piggish person is someone who looks at the gospel and immediately says, how does this meet my immediate need? Like, how does this satisfy my appetites? What's in it for me? And that's what a pig does with a pearl. What am I going to do with this? Can I eat it? So here's a person who hears somebody talking about Jesus and the gospel, that Jesus died for you, that you need to trust him to live a life, obeying and serving him. And the piggish person says, okay, all right. I'd really like to get into law school. Will he help me get into law school? You know, I'd really like to make some money. Will he help me make some money in life? I kind of know what's in it for me. I want to know, does it satisfy the appetites that I have? Will I get things that I want from having this relationship with God? But the man or woman who grasps the pearl operates in almost the exact opposite way. Do you see it? She's not saying, what can I get out of it? He sells everything he has. He loses everything in order to get the pearl for the sake of the pearl. So what do we have here? When some people hear about what Jesus Christ has done, they find it utterly beautiful, incomparable, and wondrous. Sometimes it takes a while to reach that conclusion. They see the holiness of God. They see that they're lost. They realize the electrifying grace of God that He would send His Son. And they realize the love of Jesus that He would give up everything for you. And you realize it's all grace. And they finally say there's nothing more important than that, than having that relationship with God. And I can see now that it's by free grace. And they're amazed. And they see the gospel, and it astonishes them. And then there are other people who see the gospel, and they say, I don't know. I mean, what would I get out of it? I'm not sure. I don't quite understand. It doesn't mean they're stuck that way forever. But if they remain there, it is eternally tragic. That's the parable. Notice, by the way, it's not the pig and the dog that are really at fault here. They're just being themselves at this point. They're not particularly vicious animals. They're just responding as they might. It's the owners who are stupid enough to throw them things that they can't appreciate, to push on them things they cannot understand or use. So what does this parable mean? I think there's at least two principles we can draw out to find the meaning. Let me give you the first one, and there's one underneath it. The first one goes along with everything Jesus is trying to tell us about relationships. There are people that you share the truth of Jesus' good news with, and it doesn't compute yet. So you must not force them. You must honor the pace of God in their lives. And we don't know what that pace is. Guilt and manipulation are always a violation. You see, for any and every person, yourself included, the gospel doesn't make sense unless God is helping you on the inside also. Therefore, if you push and push and push on someone and they're not ready, they may turn on you and be angry with you. And we're always in danger of having something like going on in our head, this little guilty voice, this guilty pressure that says, you've got to say your piece. Right? Don't walk away until you've, you've said it. Right, to just lay the truth out there, even if it's insensitive and unloving, to pat yourself on the back because you've been courageous for Jesus when sometimes you've just been a pit bull for Jesus and you mauled someone. <laughs> and isn't it interesting that Jesus is calling out the ones who are giving the pig something that they can't handle in a way they can't handle it? Don't Christians need to hear this? Please hear me. Jesus is not 
a relativist. The pearl of great value, the gospel, it is absolute truth. Yet he says, those of you who believe the gospel are responsible to not just be throwing this at people and pushing it down their throats so that they choke on it. When they get angry at you, don't say, well, at least I was courageous for the truth. That's just their problem. No, it might be your problem. Does that make sense of what we're saying, that we have to honor the pace of God's work in people's lives? I've seen this so many times throughout my life, but especially as a pastor over these last nine years. There are many of you who have come to faith in Christ in our church family, or you've connected with the gospel of God's grace in a powerful and fresh way for the first time. If that's your story, you might say, I grew up in church, but I never heard the gospel. That might be the case, but I actually bet that's not entirely true. There are some churches that are so whack they do not present the gospel or they monkey with it so much that it is unrecognizable. But for the most part, you can go into a lot of churches and over a short period of time, you're going to hear the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done. And the interesting thing is that for a lot of us, myself included, we simply didn't recognize it when we first saw it. When we heard it, we weren't ready. And the truth is that most people need to hear the gospel message quite a few times before they understand it enough to make a decision about it. Some friends of mine who do ministry among Muslim people in Central Asia say that the average Muslim background Christian needed to hear the gospel at least seven times before they understood what it was. I actually think that's probably pretty true for people here in North America. The farther we move away from being biblically literate as a culture. There are people in every church where the gospel is communicated who cannot hear it, who are not hearing it yet. And it makes perfect sense of Matthew 7, 6 here. God has his own journey that he's taking everybody on. He's working in people's lives in very different ways. And it's your job to be as sensitive as you can to God's Holy Spirit. God, what are you doing in this person's life? How can I be a part of it? What do you want me to share? Where do you want me to keep my mouth shut? I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. They're kids' books, but as I read them over and over as an adult, I just get more out of them. And there's this one book called The Horse and His Boy, and there's two characters, a boy named Shasta and a girl named Erebus. And the lion, Aslan, representing Christ, keeps showing up throughout this book in kind of random places. And at one point, Aslan shows up to meet Erebus, and when she sees him, he claws her across the back. He doesn't really wound her, but he draws blood and he scares her to death and she runs off. And then sometime later, the lion shows up to meet Shasta and he just talks with Shasta. Shasta says, are you the lion that scratched Erebus? And the lion says, yes. Well, why did you do that, said Shasta. And the implication is, well, why aren't you doing that with me? Why did you do that to her and not me? You were just talking. Why did you scratch her and not me? And child, says the lion, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. And at the end of the book of John, one of the other Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus has this incredible conversation with his main man, Peter. He says, you're going to die for me. It's going to be a martyr's death for my sake, Peter. Peter's taking it in. He's thinking about it kind of looking around. He sees one of the other guys, John, one of the other disciples, and he's like, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? <laughs> and Jesus says to him, if, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. Which is to say, I don't tell you exactly what I'm doing in anybody else's life. 
I only tell you what I'm doing in your life. Therefore, we must not push the gospel onto people in a cookie-cutter sort of way. Yes, we must be bold. We must be courageous. We must speak truth clearly. We must always be asking the Holy Spirit for opportunities. We must not grow weary, Galatians says. But we do it with gentleness and respect, with sensitivity to where the person is. And if they turn on you and tear you to pieces, Jesus says in many cases it's your own fault. 1 Peter 3.15 captures this tension perfectly. It says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Like, start there. Are you living with Him as your Lord? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. But that's just the immediate lesson. Here's the one underneath. What's the second thing to learn? The text is just pointing us to Matthew 13 where Jesus talks about that parable of the pearl. And the ultimate lesson is that the only way you're going to be a person who can speak the truth in love, who's not so cowardly that you keep your mouth shut, and not so abrasive that you tell people the truth in a way that actually harms them, the only way you're ever going to see your sins as greater than other people's sins The only way you're going to be absolutely humbled into graciousness is if when you see the gospel, you give up everything in order to get it. That it is that important. It is that place of primacy in your life. That is to say that when you're like that man who sees that great pearl in the marketplace, he just stops. He stops calculating. When it says that he sold everything he he had to get it, it doesn't mean he... It means he stopped doing cost-benefit analysis. Like... That's what the pig does. He's not sitting there saying, well, what what am I going to get out of it? And if I do this and I do that, and God's going to give me this and that, you've stopped all that. Because the wonder of grace has changed you forever. You say, I'm no longer saying, what's God, what's in it for me? Instead, I'm simply saying, here I am, I'm yours. My maker, my king. How, How do you want me to live? How can I live my life in you? How can you use me? Do you have that kind of heart? Have you heard these ideas about Jesus dying for you and you say, it's nice, but it's not for me. It hasn't captured your imagination yet. It hasn't captured your heart yet. It hasn't really changed your life yet. It's not, you've not really wrestled with it in your mind yet. I just want to kindly implore you, look at it until it does. So where do we get that heart? Here's here's the thing. Sometimes you cannot avoid people being offended and hurt when you share about Christ with them, when you share a hard truth with them, when you speak a biblical truth to them. Sometimes no matter how, how nice you are, no matter how careful you are, they ask you, they might even ask you to tell them the truth. And you tell them the truth. And no matter how humble, no matter how careful, they hate it and they can't take it and they get angry, and they turn on you, they might even do things to you, sometimes you can't avoid it. My friends, the gospel message is offensive by its very nature because it says you are broken and lost in your sin and you cannot get out by yourself. You need someone outside of you who is greater and stronger than you to come in and pull you up out of the pit by the greatness of his life and love and sacrifice. But you don't need to be offensive. Jesus knew this would happen. Jesus knew if he came to earth, we would trample him. He is the perfect pearl. He's the perfect example of it. He's the greatest jewel. And all of us in our natural state are brute animals toward him. 
John 1 says, he came to that which was his own. He he made us. And he came here. And his own did not receive him. Isaiah 53, which Corey read, says, we esteemed him not. He was despised and rejected. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. Look at this relationship that's described in verse 11. I'm just just dipping a toe into the last part of it here. But it says this, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? God wants to give you everything you really need, which means there are a lot of things you want that you don't really need. And he does, he does this. And if you see him voluntarily coming to earth and being trampled underfoot, so he could go to the cross and die for our sins, being trampled underfoot to bear in our place what we deserve for love, through love, because of love for you. I just implore you to wake up and see it. Wake up with the help of God and see what he did for you and then give up everything to come be with him, to follow him, to be his. Say, Lord, if you've done that for me, If you've given me free salvation, I receive it. And I'm going to live for you. If that is the center of your world, your universe, it will humble you because you realize you didn't have enough on your own, that you needed him, and it will affirm you higher than anybody else could affirm you. That you were that love that the king of the universe was thinking about you and made a rescue plan with you in mind and redeemed you and restored you. It's going to turn you into the kind of person that we need in this community of faith. One that can speak the truth in love. We desperately need to be a community like this. If we are, we will stand out like a bright light against the backdrop of any culture. Whether contemporary, whether traditional, whether religious, whether secular. And we would be so different that we truly would be what Jesus says we should be in the Sermon on the Mount. The light of the world, a city set up on a hill. Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to ask that you'd help us to maybe swallow a pill of of what seems like bitter medicine that is good for us. Maybe it's this difficult truth of realizing we still haven't understood what's the big deal about Christianity yet. I pray we'd have humility. Those who are seeking it, They just keep coming to you. You are not a God who wants to hide himself from us, but you want to reveal yourself to hearts that are open and humble. So God, for those who are seeking you, would you show them who you are through your word, through your spirit and prayer, through friendships, through conversation, through things they read, that they'd see the faithful, enduring love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. That he lived the life we couldn't live, And he died the death that we should have died. And he did it in our place to give us salvation and forgiveness and righteousness and relationship with you into eternity. And God, if we are your followers, I pray that we would think about how we relate to people. Are we putting ourselves on a pedestal above them and condemning them? Or are we genuinely wanting to speak the truth in love for their good and for your glory? God, make us not afraid. And make us not cruel in our truth-telling. Truth and love. Help us. Make us this kind of community. And give us 
dependence on your Holy Spirit as we talk about people with the gospel. That we'd know, we'd ask, we'd listen, what are you doing here, Lord? And what do you want me to do to say to re- how to respond? Lord, there's so much for us here. I pray you'd be making us into a people that truly reflect you, the light of the world. And that our relationships would be healthy and flourishing because of it. Because we can live this way together. And that people not in your family yet would be drawn in by the winsome grace of Jesus Christ. Help us and change us and teach us, Jesus. We need you. Amen.